I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode 57. Mark LaCour, welcome in. How are you feeling this morning? Awesome, dude. I mean, it's just been a great week already. Um, got a great week in front of us. I'm actually able to record the show not on the telephone. So, <laughs> right. yeah. If anybody hasn't heard that, we we recorded Oil and Gas Careers podcast on Tuesday, and Mark was calling in for the show. Not not yeah, the best hard, quality. Not get good audio quality. <laughs> not, not the best quality. But interesting fact. Another fact we've learned about Mark Lacour is that you know there could be a chance that instead of giving you a good education a good education here on the on the show each week he could be pulling you over <laughs> yeah i don't know how we got on this subject but yeah right out of the marine corps i thought about becoming a police officer and so part of the process um, of getting through everything so you can be qualified and go to the, the police officer training is you do a ride-along program and so i rode along with the detectives and they were a bunch of goofballs so that was kind of fun then I rode along with the guys that were doing uh, serving civic stuff. That was just boring. And then I rode along with the guys that worked traffic. And I was amazed at how crappily people treat them. And it's like, I, I'm not a violent person, but at some point I knew I was going to end up punching somebody in the face. And it's like, you know what? I, I can't do this for a living. So I, I never finished it. But I, I thought about it. You thought about it. And you also had a high, high speed chase with an old woman. Um, yeah, you see some you, those traffic guys see some crazy stuff. Um, yeah, we had this old like grandma lady went to pull her over just because she was not wearing her seatbelt. I mean, you just would have talked to her, would have given her a ticket, and she led us on a high speed chase, and they end up having to pull her off the car and cuff her. And it's like, you I just where the heck did that come from? Same thing, we pulled over some businessmen, um, and one of them jumped out the car, took off running because he had some warrant somewhere, and it's just. You know, those, those poor guys that, that work traffic have a lot of uh, respect. <laughs> I've kind of seen their world a little bit. So when I get pulled over, my hands are on top of the steering wheel. It's yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, sir, because I know what the crap they go through. And, you know, they don't get paid a lot. So, you know, hats off to our men in blue out there protecting everybody. I got your back. Yeah, I, I, I didn't realize what a horrible day-to-day grind it could be. Because where was that again? Because it wasn't in Houston. It was in Lafayette, Louisiana. Yeah. So even in a smaller city like Lafayette, you've got crazy things like that happening on well, a daily and, and basis. Then, I mean, physically, think about it. You're in the car for eight hours, so you haven't moved, you haven't stretched, and all of a sudden you got to break out in a full-out run, and you're wearing 20 pounds of hardware around your waist. I mean, it's like a, a tough mutter competition every day for you. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, all right. Well, uh, you also wanted to give a shout-out here at the top of the show. Yeah, Jonathan and Atwell. Thanks, dude. He, uh, he reached out to me. I talked to him a little bit about Exxon, and um, I did it because I just wanted to help. And I get this package, and it's an Atwell Nike polo shirt and a handwritten thank you note, which which in today's world you never get. So, Jonathan, dude, you didn't have to do it, but I sincerely appreciate it. That is huge. Yeah, handwritten notes really stand out in a world of email and voicemail and so forth. So that's great. Yeah, it's on my Facebook um, company page. I scanned it because it's just so rare to get something like that. All right. Yeah. So go to tryrocket.com forward slash. I'll have to look it, have to look it up. I can't remember the, the link I put together for you. Um, regardless, this is the first Friday Q&A. And we have quite a few questions to get into. So let's kick it off with David Gray 
from OMS Optical Meteorology Services. He's the Marketing and Communications Manager. Here's his question. Hey, James and Mark, love the show. Great job. I listen in the evenings after work here in the UK whilst out running. You guys do a fantastic job of making the world a little smaller and bringing us to bringing us leading edge news and insights from across the oil and gas industry. In fact, I've cited some facts from your podcast in a paper I'm working on as part of my post grad study. I'm guessing that fact was from you, Mark. Oh, dude, I should. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, David, make sure you fact check that because we don't get everything perfect. Yeah, that's and, and you'll discover that as we go further through this show. Our business, like many others, has felt the pinch of the low of the low oil prices. We're a service provider, mainly based in deep water. We created we create solutions to help pipeline operators fit up and inspect pipelines. I know a lot of other supply chain businesses are suffering too. Do you have any suggestions as to how? we can get noticed higher up the chain so we can get specced into projects as a matter of course rather than an emergency measure. Cheers and keep up the good work. JG, thanks for those fantastic comments. And as I said in my email to him when I replied, Mark, you and I are both going to have a lot of thoughts on this, so why don't you kick it off? Yeah, you know what's interesting about this? So um, Monday I had to uh, travel out for client meetings, but before I did, I went and met with a small service company that found me because their revenue stream has dried up 90%. And so um, um, we did some root cause analysis and I helped them structure um, a sales plan. But the basic problem, basic root cause, is when times were good, they were not putting money or time in, into the sales and marketing efforts. The, their phone just rang. And so when the price of crude fell, all of a sudden that lack of attention to building that pipeline of prospects really bit them in the butt. And so, um, I, you know, when times are tight, it's really um, hard to increase your footprint, increase your market share, um, because people are scared. Um, even their, your clients, David, the you know the offshore operators that that have these pipelines and manifolds and um, plants out there that to move that crude around, they're scared, right? Because their people are getting laid off. So for them to take a risk in, with the new vendors is 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 hard to convince them to do. But I do have some direction for you. The first thing is you need to sit down, you and your management team need to sit down and actually build out a sales and marketing plan, like literally write it down, figure out how many people are in your market. You know, your market's probably geographically defined, figure out how many people you're doing business with now, and then see who you're not doing business. This will develop your target list. Now, what a lot of sales uh, inexperienced people do is when they build that target list, they make the top targets, the biggest companies, right? Because they think they can sell the most and they don't. They either don't put the small companies on there or they put them last. And they're, they're, what they do is they spend a lot of money, money and time on the big companies, the Chevrons and the BPs and the Statoils. The truth is those are harder to sell to. You're better off flipping that model, especially like y'all, y'all are small, and find smaller companies that are quicker to adopt. And then it's just sales 101. Figure out what um, problem that you solve, right? Figure out who in that company has that problem, and then engage in discussions, helpful discussions around that problem. Um, and let them know that you're uh, ready to do business with them. Um, if they have an existing vendor, ask if you can be the backup vendor. And you you work that plan, and when the price of crude comes back, you'll be in a good place. Um, now, from a marketing point of view, I think, James, I'm going to let you talk about that because that's another thing that's vital uh, and that a lot of small operators spend no money or time in. Yeah, and so I'm looking at omsmeasure.com right now, and I've got quite a few suggestions. I'll I'll limit my time here so that we can get to the rest of the questions. But the first thing that I notice about this website 
is that it is somewhat of a brochure site. It does have a little bit of lead generation to it, but here's the biggest problem I see is that in the dropdown, it says news. And then the only link there is blog. And when I click blog, I am brought to the blog and I've got a blog post here from August 3rd, 2016. And then before that, February 27th, 2015. And before that, May 12th, 2014. And so you're not putting out any content that's going to arouse interest and drive people to your site. Another problem that I see with this blog is that there's no opt-in. There needs to be an opt-in for an email list on the right-hand side, right at the top where it says search here. You need to replace that with an opt-in form. And you need to give something away. We call that a bribe so that people will give you their list. And this is the whole science of building an audience so that you can sell them things. And when it comes to creating content, the key is not to create content that's about you. It's to create content that provides quote unquote utility, which is among us marketers is a very known phrase these days by Jay Bear, who wrote the book. And if you've never read it, go pick it up. Utility, uh, why smart marketing is about help, not hype. And what you do is you sit down and you say, what are the questions that we get all the time from our customers? And that question is a blog post title. And then you just start writing stuff and you start putting it out there. And you not only have the opt-in on the right, you put a pop-up on the blog so that people who are really appreciative of your content will opt in. And then you also have to make sure to send Google the right search signals so that you can rank at the top of the at the top of the search engine rankings, the SERPs is what we call them. And this is a farming technique. This is not, this is not hunting. So what you're going to do is over time, you're going to build your audience. And if you look at triberocket.com, you can click the button that says become a sponsor. And you can actually look at the graph in terms of listenership of this audience. And you can watch how, we didn't get to 75,000, 77, 78,000 downloads overnight. It's a consistent, relentless execution over time that builds your audience, builds your authority, and then gets you into that, out of that commoditized space and into that we need them to be specced in upfront place. So I hope that helps. Yeah. And Dave, just think about this. You're listening to our show. This is our content. Get it? <laughs> We're providing value, right? We're put, putting valuable content out there. People look at us as experts. So we have a lot of inbound leads. So you, you just have to think about this differently. David, I would, if I was you, I'd see it, if you could arrange a phone call with James um, and, and just, you know, you may want to look at what he's able to help people do because he, he, he blew my business up. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I'm happy to help with any other questions around that, but those are just a few tips just straight looking at the website. All right, let's move on. <laughs> I, I, I titled this CO2 fight. Um, this was a Twitter conversation that you had back in February, actually, and we never really got to it on the show. So I decided to put it in here. Mark enjoyed the most recent podcast as a rare lefty in your audience, 
who is also a realist about energy issues and is fascinated by the oil and gas business, I would submit that the closure of half of Germany's nuclear power stations since 2011 might have had something to do with the growth of CO2 emissions. It was less a failure of renewable tech per se, although to be clear, I'm not a huge fan of wind and sun as a replacement for reliable electric, electric sources, and more a disastrous energy policy by Merkel that Germans continue to suffer under your thoughts, Mr. LaCour. Yeah, so um, I agree that the energy policy was a disaster. It's I don't know what the word is that's worse than disaster, but that's what that policy was. Now, I, I will stick to my guns that that the uh, increase in CO2, yes, of course, because they pulled nuclear power offline, they had to replace that with something. The renewables couldn't handle loads, so they had to build more coal-fired and natural gas power plants. But I still say that the reason the CO2s weren't uh, reduced was because of renewables. Let me give you a number that nobody knows out there. So before they started this energy wind policy, when Germany got energy normal, um, you have a grid, electrical grid, and that grid sometimes has to be propped up. Um, what happens is the demand gets bigger than the supply, and if you don't increase um, um, supply in that moment, the whole grid is shut down. It's called a brownout. So what happens is you have these generation stations that aren't running that when you get in that situation where the grid needs to be propped up they kick on to just keep the grid up and then when the load drops they cut off so before they start this whole energy wind thing in 2006 there were only three of those type of interventions only three times in the year did they have to fire up um, extra generating capacity to keep the grid online um, in 2014 when they're in the middle of this energy wind policy they had over 3,500 of those type of interventions and that those were disastrous too, because the, that those shut down, those shut down manufacturing plants in the middle of making a BMW and things like that. Yeah, but think about the difference between three times a year that you have to fire up emergency generations and thirty five hundred. That's that's the the reason that the CO 2s haven't dropped is they had to prop up the renewables with conventional electrical <laughs> generation plants, which run either coal or natural gas. So. Um, but I do agree it's a disastrous uh, policy. Uh, we've talked about it before on the show. I think we're going to end up talking about it again on this one. Um, and, and it's it's um, a model. And, and, and I have nothing against renewables. In the right situation, they're great, right? Think of all the um, the street signs that are being lit by solar. That, that just makes perfect sense. Low power requirements. You don't need to worry about running wires. It's extremely reliable. It keeps the sign lit, so it keeps people safe. But would you want to fly in a solar-powered plane? <laughs> no, you wouldn't no. because it, you know that the risk is much greater if it fails in a plane than if it fails on a street sign. So in the right places, they're great. And we've made such great strides in technology. You know, I've talked about this before in other shows. I think we're going to hit peak oil demand way before we ever hit peak oil supply because we're gradually shifting to uh, cleaner forms of energy, including things like natural gas. So um, great question. Thanks for uh, reaching out to me on Twitter, and um, I hope that helped. All right, cool. Yeah, and so we are going to talk about that because we might as well just put them back to back. And so here we go. It is from Patrick McKinney, and he works at Blatt, Blatt Energy, something like that. Blatt Energy is, is actually the, uh, the, the, the link. I'll have all these in the show notes at trybrocket.com forward slash TW57. Mr. LaCour. I am relatively new to your podcast and have been using it to enhance my understanding of the other aspects of the energy sector. While I, uh, 
I will not go as far as to say that I take exception to your characterization of Germany's renewable energy program. I do believe that the way you described to your listening audience was entirely wasn't entirely accurate. No doubt we have a different we have different sources of information. To be clear, I'm not in the renewables industry because I feel it is morally right. I'm in the business because I am well compensated and believe that long-range economics are favorable to the business. I'd also state that I see no scenario in which natural gas is not an integral part of the electrical generation solution. Likewise, I do not see a viable solution where oil or specifically petrochems can be replaced. My point to those statements is that I do not see oil and gas as enemies of renewables, nor do I think you should see us as competition of concern. If your podcast was, quote, coal this week, this would be a very different situation. If you've ever, if you're ever in the mood to discuss some of these points, I would welcome the conversation. And so your thoughts on this, Mark? Yeah, so I actually reached out to him and we tried to schedule a call and first he couldn't make it and I couldn't make it and then we got into email hell. So we haven't actually spoken live yet, um, but I do sincerely appreciate you reaching out to me. Um, you know, we love our audience no matter uh, you know where you sit politically or environmentally, whatever, our listeners are our listeners and, and we love every one of y'all. So, um, I, you know, you know what I'm going to say on this. I disagree. Um, the the energy wind um, policy in Germany failed, right? Their goals were pretty simple, right? To reduce uh, uh, CO2 emissions by 80% and to have, by 2050, have a renewable energy supply 60% of their supply and then increase energy efficiency by 50%. That was their three stated goals of the project. They failed. They did not hit any of those three. So, and then, you know, we talked about this in earlier shows, there were some side effects that nobody saw, like the cost of German electricity going up six times, right? German people started calling it their second mortgage. Because of those cost increases, uh, manufacturing was pushed out of Germany because they just couldn't compete anymore. And manufacturing, uh, precision manufacturing is 25% of the German economy. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it just failed, pure and simple failed. Um, did we learn a lot? Did the German people learn a lot? Yes. Um, the problem uh, financially with a lot of the renewables is they're propped up by subsid subs subsidies, government subsidies, tax subsidies. If you look in the news right now, you'll see all over the place how the um, spin on renewables is going through the roof. And people point to that as, as showing how much we're shifting to renewables. If we removed all the renewables off the planet, we wouldn't notice. I mean, it's that small a market share. The reason we're spending more money uh, is because here in the U.S., when we uh, the Democrats and Republicans negotiate lifting the export ban, part of that was we would subsidize more renewables. So that's why it's being subsidized. It was a, a negotiation tactic. It's not that people want to do it. And once again, in the right situation, they make perfect sense. Um, I'm, it's, I, I don't see renewables as competition. I, I don't see anybody's competition on gas, quite frankly. Um, the energy mix will change as we go through time like it always has. If you think about the dawn of human history, we started off using renewables. It was called biomass. It was called wood. We burned wood. That's biomass. We've transitioned past that from a technology point of view. And as we move through history, we'll, 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 we'll continue to transition uh, how we use and where we get energy from. I, I didn't plan on doing this, but I'm going to go ahead and do this. I don't know that you'll be able to hear it, Mark, so I'll let you know when I stop. But um, just to back this, I'm going to play a, a quick audio from Alex Epstein talking for Prager University. Can we rely on wind and solar energy? Are wind and solar power the answer to our energy needs? There's a lot of sun and a lot of wind. 
they're free, they're clean, no CO2 emissions. So what's the problem? Why do solar and wind combined provide less than 2% of the world's energy? To answer these questions, we need to understand what makes energy, or anything else for that matter, cheap and plentiful. For something to be cheap and plentiful, every part of the process to produce it, including every input that goes into it, must be cheap and plentiful. Yes, the sun is free. Yes, wind is free. But the process of turning sunlight and wind into usable energy on a mass scale is far from free. In fact, compared to the other sources of energy, fossil fuels, nuclear power, and hydroelectric power, solar and wind power are very expensive. The basic problem is that sunlight and wind as energy sources are both weak, the more technical term is dilute, and unreliable, the more technical term is intermittent. All right, so um, that was just about a minute of that. I sent Mark the link while we were there. If you want to hear the rest of it, it's a fantastic little breakdown. There's only three more minutes left in the video, and I will throw that in the show notes at tribrock.com forward slash TW57. Let's move on from the energy debate and get into some other questions around business. So Amir Ali from Cameron, he's a business analyst. Here's his question. As someone who is young to the oil and gas industry, less than two years, how can recent grad graduates capitalize on their degrees? I have both a finance and supply chain degree on new opportunities with, uh, you know, capitalize on the degrees on new opportunities within the industry. For example, I'm interested in using my oil field services experience and finance degree to switch to banking. What tips or advice do you have for us? Thanks and enjoy your show. Keep up the good work. That's all you, Mark. Yeah. So, Mark, um, I realize if you're working at Cameron while you're asking this question, I'm sorry, dude. Um, that part of the industry is, is getting hammered, and unfortunately, next week, next year, it's going to be worse. It's going to be a bloodbath. So, a couple of things uh, uh, to think about. One thing is, if you have you have oil and gas experience and you have supply a supply chain degree, supply chain is an issue in this entire industry, no matter what's going on from one end to the other. Go look at petrochemicals. Go look at downstream. They're, they they all snap you up in a heartbeat, and you're gonna make more money than you can make at the bank. But if you want to go work at the bank, there are banking and financial institutions out there that solely target oil and gas companies, and they would love to have somebody with your oil and gas actual practical experience and your finance degree. So there's there's two routes that you can use. That my my suggestion from a career point of view is go look at downstream and specifically petrochemicals. Uh, Google. Um, and where is he, James? We don't know if he's here in Houston or not, do we? No, we don't. Yeah, so uh, wherever you are in the world, Google ethylene crackers uh, X. So in this case, if you're in Houston, uh, Google ethylene crackers Houston, and you'll get a list of companies that's standing up ethylene crackers, and those are your targets. Those are the companies for you to reach out to. And we've talked before in previous shows and on our career show about don't go online and fill out the application, right? Go on LinkedIn figure out who's hiring for that position, connect with them, provide useful information, and then let them know that you'd be interested in going to work for their com company. It's a much better approach than having some uh, HR generalist see if you have the right keywords in your resume. Um, but anyway, thanks for reaching out. Great question. I hope that helped. Yeah, and that's always going to be a bit of our answer to anyone in general, whether they're new grads or not. Just go downstream right now. Right now. <laughs> right now. All right, Bart Christer. Our friend Bart Christer, I got to give a hat tip to Bart Christer. I think I think he's got a question on every Q and A show, which provides him a backlink, and we can talk offline if you want to about what that does 
for the search rankings in terms of his company. I joked when I sent this to you, Mark, I said, I think Bart's trying to stump you. The Baker Hughes rig count is lowest since they started publishing the rig count in 1949. At what point prior to 1949 did we have this low a rig count? So, Bart, you are absolutely trying to stump me because you know <laughs> that the dad is not out there. So I have two approaches. I can either make up a number because I know that you can't verify if I'm right or not because <laughs> the dad is not there. <laughs> or we, we, could, we could use this as a bit of a learning lesson. So how about we go back to when there was only the rig count was one in the world? You, you want to guess when that was? That was in Pennsylvania. Nope. It was 347 AD in China. Really? The Chinese used stone and bamboo to drill 800 feet to hit oil. I, I didn't know that. Yep, most people know that. That was the first recorded oil well, 347. 347. So Bart, so Bart I hope that helps you know, a little bit, you all know that in 347, the rig count was one. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to have to find uh, the Wikipedia in on that, and I'll put it in the show notes. Let me write it down so I don't forget. So I'll just put wiki right here. And also, all right, moving on, we have Amir. Okay, I should have practiced his name. <laughs> um, Dashtine. Seeking new opportunities, here's his question. James and Mark, first of all, I'm glad I came across your podcast. It's both informative and entertaining. My question is in regards to the downturn in crude prices and the impact Saudi of the impact of Saudi Arabia's decision to maintain production versus making cuts. I constantly hear of our oil and gas uh, hear of oil and gas workers complain about how the situation we're in is Saudi Arabia's fault. What is your unbiased view of the culprit behind the fall in prices? Isn't the U.S. independent oil and gas companies the one to blame for the excess production? That, and first of all, Amir, you got to listen to the whole backlog of the shows because Mark, Mark is, discusses this at length in, in several shows, but let's recap it. Yeah, so good question because um, there, there's a bunch of things that feed into this if, if you want to know the entire picture. One is geopolitics. One, quite frankly, is the U.S.'s lack of support for Saudi Arabia from a military point of view. Um, we've always been allies, and in the last couple of administrations, we've gotten further and further away from that. Saudi Arabia has enemies, right? Russia and Iran. Saudi Arabia uses oil like we use battleships and tanks. So they did not cut production, right? A lot of people think they did something, and you're right. Um, um, I mean, a lot of people only gas complain that Saudi Arabia actually did something. They did nothing. <laughs> they just didn't cut production. And that production caused a glut on the market, and they knew it would. And they did it to, to stick a knife in Russia's back and to keep Iran from being able to build up a strong military force. Um, once again, they're trying to control their enemies. But globally, everybody kept production up. The U.S. kept production up. Russia kept production up. In fact, we actually increased production. So as a whole – all of these companies that are producing uh, – countries, I'm sorry, that are producing oil and putting it on the global market are to blame, right? The difference is OPEC, predominantly uh, Saudi Arabia, has the ability to ramp up production or go down production to try to keep prices profitable for everybody. They're basically the swing producer. Um, and I think we're going to talk about this uh, in another yeah, question. The so next I'm not question. Too deep about this. But um, th that's, that's the true story of what's going on. Um, it's not – Saudi Arabia's fault. It's not OPEC's fault, but Saudi Arabia did it on purpose for a reason. They did do it on purpose, and um, we can get to the 
subsequent question in terms of how American companies play into this with Alexander from JP Morgan Chase. He's an equities financial analyst. Hi, Mark and James. If OPEC members finally come to an agreement this year to cut production, what effect would it and subsequent increase in U.S. domestic production have on the spot? Do U.S. and I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do U.S. and non-OPEC producers have enough capacity to keep the prices low, regardless of OPEC production targets? Longtime listener Alexander Uchev. I believe he's given us questions before. Thanks for another one, brother. Yeah. So Alexander, uh, we need a financial expert on this show. <laughs> Ask around J.P. Morgan Chase if somebody wants to come on the show, because you hear us say all the time we're not investment experts. We'd like to have one that we could actually hand some questions off to which would probably throw a good bit of uh, traffic and business your way. So let me answer your question. If, and I'm guessing you mean on the spot price, um, if OPEC comes to agreement to cut production, the perception will immediately cause the price of crude to go up. Not the, the difference in supply, just the perception in the market. Um, and, and we're actually counting on that. We, we think that's going to happen. So the spot price will actually go up. And we've said this forever. We think it's going to be between $55, $60 a barrel by August. See if I'm right. Um, now, as far as U.S. and non-OPEC producers having capacity to keep the prices low, this is what I think. We're not there yet. Uh, Russia could have been there recently, but with the sanctions, they won't have that ability to swing. The U.S. will. We will destabilize OPEC. If, and we can't do it now, but in the very near future, say another five years, if we decide as a country that we need to um, – um, keep prices low to keep our enemies from having money, we can ramp up the, the production. We can turn that faucet wide open and we can keep oil down to $17 a barrel. Um, I think that's awesome. So that's you know kind of my, my take on that. We're not quite there yet. We will be the swing producer in, in the world in a very near future. Yeah, and if you want to hear more on that, um, that was episode, um, I'm pulling it up right now. It was episode 47 Oil and Gas This Week podcast, super major oil companies overtake OPEC. So we we discussed at length um, one of the articles that specifically talks about this. I believe it was from our frenemy, Seeking Alpha. <laughs> um, so oh our God. frenemy, right. All right. Those are all of our questions. Again, fantastic, fantastic questions. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. If you haven't written in or specifically gone to TriBrocket.com and click the send voicemail button on the right, to leave a voicemail so we can play it on the show. We would love that. But just regardless, these first Friday Q&As are pretty much my favorite part of the month. Moving on, we have our onion of the week coming back with the onion. And I did get a chuckle. I got a chuckle from Mark out of this one. Sudafed introduces new sinus drill for immediate congestion relief. And Yeah, it, it, it's a little funny. We end up having a, a 10-year-old boy gross conversation around this off the mic. <laughs> It was definitely a 10-year-old boy conversation, and both of us have some congestion. That's that's the price you pay for living in the greatest state in America. Um, so, you know what, Jane? I, I, it's, um, it's, it doesn't snow here. It pollens. Right. I mean, literally, my car is yellow right. uh, because of the pollen. Right. Uh, Paige, our, our friend of the show, coordinator uh, for some of the other things that we're working on, she actually has a duster for her car that she carries in it. So, yeah, ton of pollen everywhere. All right, we have a winner, Mr. LaCour. Can you tell us who it is? It is Justin Campbell with Fence to Maker and Associates. He's an environmental specialist. And, Justin, I 
think I met you at Nape. I'm not not quite sure, but I know Fencimator went well in Lafayette. So congratulations, you got one of these awesome, awesome, awesome offshore bags. Uh, what do they need? What do our listeners need to do if they want to uh, win one, James? It's yeah. So no purchase necessary to win. You can see the official site for details. It's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Thank you to Red Wing for supporting the show and putting out some fantastic flame resistant gear that is a head to head to toe complete solution. So if you are in a situation where you're managing dozens of different vendors and you want a one stop shop, they are the ones that you need to go to. And also have to give a shout out to Intech, our newest sponsor. <laughs> I couldn't remember the name of our sponsors there for a second. <laughs> but um, they they uh, they put together a white paper that you had a chance to read, Mark. Artificial lift, how to drive costs down and get the most out of the ground. And yeah. so I'll get out yeah. of the way. If you're out there in the field and you're producing, download this white paper. This is some really good stuff. There's a lot of good info in here about how they can help you automate a lot of stuff at, at, at a very low cost, which would keep your production numbers up. Just think about what happens when you lose a motor on a, on a pump jack, right? Or think about when you lose one well on a pad of six wells that you're using gas injection. You lose that one well, all six go down. They can stop that from happening. Not only can they stop that from happening, but then they can help you do predictive analytics on your maintenance. So you know ahead of time that you need to have this valve in your warehouse or this pump or this belt or whatever. So think about how much more efficiently your fields would run and how much you can more produce in this low crew price environment. So uh, if, you're a produ- if you're a producer out there anywhere, anywhere in the world, uh, download this uh, white paper on, on artificial lift. It's really good stuff, and it's free. Yeah, and I'm glad you said anywhere in the world because they are a truly global company. And to get this white paper, you can go to intechww, so I-N-T, or intechww.com forward slash podcast, and go ahead and download that white paper. All right, Mark, we've got a couple of events coming up. We have... Business Development Chevron in the Deep Water Gulf of Mexico, a story of steady growth happening at the Four Seasons here in Houston on Wednesday, next Wednesday, the 6th. What's this all about? This is, the, I, I can't go to this kind of client stuff, and I want to go to this so bad. So this is the head, this is the president of Chevwater Deepwater ENP. So this is a big wig inside of Chevron. And he's going to talk about their long-term business development um, strategy in the Gulf of Mexico. So you get to hear from Chevron, who's, one of the leaders in the Gulf of Mexico, how they figured out their finances, how they figured out who they were going to sell this oil to, how they figure out what investments they're going to make, what platforms they're going to build, who they're going to buy trees from, and they could tell their business development story. I mean, this is this is super insider baseball. So if if you're in that upstream offshore world, go to this. Yeah, I just clicked the link. I think I'm going to have to register. Um, it's whatever, forty or fifty dollars, ten dollars if you're a student. I know we have a lot of students that listen to the show, so all these links are in the show notes again. And then after that, or um, uh, yeah, the next day, actually, SPRE, Petroleum Reserves Basics, What, How, and Why, and that's also happening here in Houston, and that's, it's a dinner. So what's this all about? Yeah, this is a group of uh, oil and gas economists. I actually know the head of this group very well. And they started out small, and it's actually grown to be pretty big. And so they get together, uh, they have dinners, they have cocktail events, they'll have a speaker, um, but, but they talk about real economics that are going on off field like because everybody in that room is somehow plugged into the oil and gas industry from an economic point of view so this is a great little event that's grown um if, if you're if you're wanting to understand how the money flows in this industry if you want to understand where you need to invest your time or money go check this out 
Yeah. All right. And then there's also SPE Tech Summit on the 5th and the 6th and a whole lot of other things. If you don't receive Mark's email that comes out once a month with every event, that's where I, it's such a handy thing. I just pull it open, copy paste into our show notes. So go to tribrocket.com forward slash events and you can get that. This is the first Friday Q&A, but the next one is just a month away. So tell them about it, Mark. Yeah, so the first Friday of every month, we answer your questions. Um, we, um, we we try to be as helpful as possible. Uh, anything you want to know about the oil and gas industry, anything from uh, production to offshore to politics to money, ask us. Um, we don't always know the answer, and if we don't, we'll tell you. Um, it looks like it's starting to be a bit of a competition for people to try to stump me, so stop it. That's not the goal of this. No matter what you you threw it out there, and I and I and I did in the in the group. Actually, I have to admit that in the group, I said try to stump Mark so we can all point and laugh at him for a change. Yeah, and then the thing that's really really cool is every now and then I'll make a mistake that I don't do intentionally, and somebody out there will correct us, and we love that. We absolutely love that. Because um, it helps us learn. I want to know if I'm wrong about something. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a great way for you to learn. So if you have anything you want to know, reach out, uh, submit a question. And if we use it on air, you'll get a shout out. Definitely. And Mark, the LinkedIn group, Global Oil and Gas Network, by the way, it's not named after the show. We're coming up on a thousand members, brother. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, if, if you listen to the show, you have to join our LinkedIn group. It's um, super useful. Um, it's not just um, related to this podcast or the Oil and Gas Careers podcast. We have future podcasts coming out. Um, it's it's a way for you to interface with your peers, ask questions. Um, it's it's a family, you know. As James calls it, it's a tribe. So we have a lot of respect and a lot of high trust with our members. Um, you know, people reach out to me all the time and ask me stuff like um, like um, um, Jonathan did about Exxon. I mean, he reached out on the group discussion, said, "Hey, I, I'm getting ready to see if I can penetrate Exxon for my company." do you mind talking to me? And I said, no. And we scheduled a call and I talked to him through what he should do. I actually gave him some contacts out there. So um, if you listen to podcasts, join the group, you will be so glad you did. Yes. Um, so that's at triberocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. And I, I paused for a second there because I had to see if we had any new reviews and we don't, Mark. We have no new reviews. Oh, come on, folks. We need your reviews. Take the minute and a half. It, it allows us to rank higher in the search engine in iTunes, which means two things. More people can find us and get useful information from us, and we start stomping our competition. Both of those things, James and I value very much. So do me a personal favor. Take the minute and a half. Go give us a review on iTunes. We uh, Thank you ahead of time. Yeah, and it's triberocket.com forward slash TW reviews and I won't make the joke about the number that there is because maybe that's why a couple of you of you animals out there haven't given us a review because you like the number that's sitting there. If you've made it this far in the show, please share it with your friends. You can do that by going to triberocket.com forward slash share li that will share the show straight to LinkedIn forward slash share FB for Facebook and forward slash share TW for Twitter. And we are right at our time and this has been a great time you're ready to get out here mark yeah so folks do great work pay it forward and we will see you next time go find some grease guys
I'm a civilian in this police car. And he goes, you see that shotgun? Do you know how to use it? I go, yeah. So now here's a complete guy in civilian clothes standing outside the cop car with a shotgun on his grandma. 